Welcome to the Let's Think About That podcast where we don't just react. We'll break it down and think about it. We're going to talk news, the law, sports, whatever we're thinking about. We're your host, Ed Yeager and Lee Allen. Lee, how are you tonight, my friend? Doing well, Ed, and I hope you are. I am doing good. Great. You know, there have been uh, tons of legal news recently. I know we sometimes talk current events, but court uh, cases have just taken the news recently from Wisconsin to South Georgia, all the way, including our state of North Carolina. Absolutely. Lots going on in the legal world. Dominating news coverage. So I, I know we've talked about Rittenhouse for a couple of weeks now, and the verdict came down after our last show. And so it's been a few days now. I don't know if there's anything you want to add. Uh, I'll just say that having watched it, it seemed like the jury had some significant evidence presented to them of self-defense, and they ruled in that fashion. Yeah, uh, I, I, I agree with you. And, and I think oh, what I thought was the most interesting aspect of that was the dates on the verdict sheets. They're not all dated the same. Oh, so, I didn't hear about that. Yeah, so, so what it looks like is they, they, they agreed early on some and then worked their way through some more and then finally um, did one uh, last Friday as they uh, finally reached, a, I guess, a, a decision on all the charges. And um, I thought that was very interesting. And I can't tell you, Ed, I'm sorry, uh, which, um, which was the stickler. But uh, it, it did look like some, some charges were easier to reach an agreement on than others. Well, and it's possible they just went sequentially also. That's right. You know, That's right. As we talked about last week, juries get charged by the trial judge that the, the state, the prosecution, whether it's the state or the Commonwealth or the federal government, they have to prove every element of every charge beyond a reasonable doubt. And often juries will take one charge at a time, go through each of the elements they've been instructed on, and then hash out what evidence they recall from the trial. So it's possible they went through it like that. Yeah, I think they took their um, their duty seriously and uh, worked hard um, and went through it piece by piece and arrived at a verdict that, in my opinion, is totally supported by the facts and the law. Um, and uh, I think the jury system worked. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, frankly, I tend not to question juries because they sit there and listen to all the evidence and I don't. Sometimes you do wonder how they reach a decision, though. But in this case, I certainly didn't wonder. Uh, the other one that just happened today was a, a verdict in the murder trial involving a, a young man named Ahmad Arbery in southeast Georgia. And three men were convicted in that murder today. Have you followed that case? I haven't followed that as much. Um particularly as it relates to the facts. I would say that my my understanding of the facts um, uh, would be that um, uh, this this uh, this fellow was out jogging and was uh, confronted by three men in a pickup truck, one of whom had a, had a shotgun. And uh, he, there was a fight, and, and, um, and then uh, this young man was shot, I think it was twice. Does that sound right? I believe it was three times. Three times, uh, one of which was in, at least one of which was in the back. Uh, yeah, although they were tussling around at the time, but I believe one of the shots and was uh, with the shotgun. And uh, my understanding is the shooter testified earlier in the week that uh, I don't. Well, I can't quote it, but the shooter's testimony cast doubt, in my opinion, on whether he was entitled to 
a self-defense instruction because uh, what he testified to with regard to whether he was in fear of his life or serious injury um, was um, uh, maybe even not present. I mean, I I, I really wondered why um, this young man got shot given the testimony of the shooter. And from what I can tell uh, from the verdicts, uh, I think the jury system worked yet again. Yeah, it seemed like that. Now, I will say that from the beginning, this story kind of evolved or the facts kind of came out differently because the presentation early on was that the victim was just jogging and was kind of almost picked out at random because there had been crimes in the neighborhood. It seemed fairly clear from some of the trial testimony that he had actually gone into this home on multiple occasions as under construction and and the police were even called once. So that part of the story changed a lot. But I think what was uh, you know, crucial evidence for the state in that case is that essentially the three guys who were involved in the shooting chose to in- involve themselves in this altercation. And it's questionable whether there was any crime that was occurring at the time or whether or not they just saw him in the neighborhood and chose that as the opportunity in which they would become involved. And then their argument about self-defense was after they had already pointed the gun at him. So they had essentially initiated that. They were the aggressor in that sense of it before he allegedly grabbed for the gun, which might be understandable given the situation. Yeah. And then they wanted to argue self-defense. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it seemed to me that uh, I, I think, and you touched on it uh, just then, um, my, my my interpretation of the facts was that these three guys were tired of this guy or someone else going into these houses under construction in the neighborhood and helping themselves to what may or may not have been scrap uh, building products. And when they saw him jogging, they decided that uh, he must have been the one or maybe they knew he was the one of them. I don't know, but they decided to uh, administer a little justice um, and affect I think they said that they were trying to perform a citizen's arrest. Now, who knows for what, because as you said, it didn't seem that there was any crime being committed by Mr. Aubrey or anyone else at the time until they pointed the shotgun at him. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't think they got sentenced, right? No, that has not occurred yet. Um, and uh, I don't know exactly what they're facing, but I assume that the shooter, because he was convicted of murder with malice, is that right? Well, he was. Now, uh, I, I try to do a little bit of research on Georgia law. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm, I'm not licensed to practice law in Georgia, but it seems like they have two types of murder. They have the malice murder, which is kind of akin to what we would think of as first degree murder in North Carolina or in mm-hmm. a lot of other jurisdictions where it's premeditation and deliberation. But this doesn't require premeditation, only malice. And then the other type of murder is felony murder, which is akin to what most jurisdictions have, where if you commit uh, some other predicate felony and a person dies in the process of it, then that's equivalent to first degree murder. Right. So the other two were still convicted of felony murder. Exactly. Even though the one guy who had his hand on the weapon, he was convicted of malice murder. Right. That's what I saw. Uh, I would expect he's looking at life or the Georgia equivalent thereof. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, so be it. You you, you kill someone like that, um, good enough for you, you know? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, one of the externalities to both of these cases is, 
is how the media treated them, because it seemed to me that the Rittenhouse case got a lot more attention. There wasn't a direct racial angle in that case, in that all the victims were were white, as was Rittenhouse. The Arbery case, which early on last year seemed to get a lot of attention from the media for a racial aspect, just I didn't see as much coverage of that trial. Yeah, I didn't even reason. You wonder if it's, you know, because they were covering the Rittenhouse trial, I, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I did note to this afternoon, and I think that was uh, that it was a recording of something that happened this morning or, or maybe even post-verdict. Al Sharpton was on the courthouse square um, with the victim's father, and the victim's father um, shouted or, or exhorted, that may be a better word, um, all lives matter. And Al Sharpton seemed to mouth the words in in response, all lives matter. And I thought that was very interesting, sort of a 180 from some of what we've seen earlier. Even though these cases from, a, I guess, a legal standpoint and an intellectual standpoint are quite interesting, you know, the bottom line is f- folks are dead. In my opinion, unlike the folks in Wisconsin, this Aubrey young man I mean, nobody can really say he was doing anything wrong at the time other than jogging. And that's just, I mean, here it is Thanksgiving, and um, his family's had to go through this trial uh, for the past week or 10 days. And uh, while I'm sure that, you know, they feel a sense of justice being done um, this afternoon and tonight, it's still, you know, there'll be an empty spot at, at their table tomorrow. That's a very good point. And, you know, at least, at least we can say that, you know, the system seems to have worked. Uh, defendants received a fair trial. Their case was heard by a jury, and a jury made a decision about yeah. it. Jury of their peers. There's power and majesty in those words. Now, the other case that's uh, been in the news and which will be a huge legal matter going forward is this incident in Waukesha, Wisconsin, not that far from where Rittenhouse occurred. Uh, in which someone drove a SUV through a parade and killed, I believe, six people, injured a few dozen others. Yeah. And I think this raises the whole question of bail reform and how it's played out in a lot of jurisdictions, because some of the stories that have come out of Waukesha um, have to do with the prosecutor there, and he has been very clear in what he said recently about, well, going back years, actually, about wanting to do things differently in the DA's office. Yeah, he's one of these um, left-wing DAs that was um, supported by George Soros uh, for the, frankly, uh, for the purpose of, of transforming our our judicial system. Um, and he ran uh, on this uh, uh, one of his one of his planks in his platform was uh, bail reform, and. Um, uh, you know, he 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 made a statement um, some time ago. Uh, it's gotten some play this week, but not in the mainstream media, uh, more so in the social media world, where he said uh, he asked rhetorically, uh, "Do I think that people or persons will die as a result of these bail reform policies?" Yes, I. Yeah, do. I have that. Uh, I actually have that quote right here. He said, is there going to be an individual I divert or I put into a treatment program who's going to go out and kill somebody? You bet. Guaranteed. It's guaranteed to happen. It does not invalidate the overall approach. Wow. That's just shocking. I don't this is think- from the guy who's the top 
you know, you can say top cop, a top prosecutor in the area who's supposed to be most concerned about public safety. Right. Right. I I don't think he can survive this politically. Um, He, uh, you know, the, the, the case with this uh, accused uh, perpetrator, you know, he, he apparently used the same vehicle to, to, uh, run over um, his uh, girlfriend, the mother of his child, um, back on November the 2nd. And she suffered a, um, a fractured uh, ankle and then um, a, uh, a dislocated femur and um, had tire marks on her. Um, the bail was ultimately reduced uh, last Thursday or two Thursdays ago. No, no. Yeah, two Thursdays ago, November 11th. I have trouble with math. That's why I'm a lawyer. To a thousand dollars, and uh, the individual made his bail on Friday the 12th. And uh, or am I getting the dates wrong? Well, here's the he, uh, he he made bail last Friday, and then did this on Sunday. Yeah, he posted a thousand dollar bail on November 11th, and then this occurred. On Sunday of this week, which was the twenty first, so about okay. ten days later. Yeah, uh, and and he's he's a registered sex offender in uh, from Nevada. He has an outstanding warrant in Nevada uh, for, um, I think, for bail jumping. I think he was charged with something and, and hit the road. Um, he had uh, a number of m- most disturbing uh, social media posts, uh, pro Hitler. Um, fanning the flames, encouraging violence against Caucasians. Um, he had made some threats against um, a, uh, a casino in, uh, in Las Vegas. Um, just a, just a uh, you know, a real difficult uh, thing to try to figure out. How, how is uh, all of this information in a computer such that news reporters can pull it up instantaneously at night on the weekend and and the DA's office makes a recommendation to this judge uh, to change the bail in this case where he you know it should be attempted murder where he ran over his his girlfriend uh, to a thousand dollars I mean that's just unheard of and I don't understand it as a former prosecutor uh, other than this Chisholm guy who's the DA is a is a you know he's a he's a left-wing nut um, yeah. he, he's there with an agenda. Um, and, uh, you know, these are the fruits, you know, you sow the wind and you reap the whirlwind and here we go. And I, um, uh, but I, I think it was sort of circling back and then, then I'll shut up. But I, if I don't, I'll forget what I'm going to say. You're right. This is going to push this, this, uh, theory or this notion of bail reform to the forefront the idea, and, and you, 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 of course, you know this, but AOC, uh, Jeremy Raskin, and um, one other representative, maybe Cory Bush, I'm not sure, sent a letter uh, on Monday to folks in New York saying, you know, you've got to do something about cash bail. And, and that's the issue. The federal government has a statute that deals with bail as do most states and the federal, the Congress changed the federal statute back uh, maybe in the late eighties, early nineties. I don't remember exactly when, but they made it express or they expressly said that 
the, the safety to a particular person or the safety of the community at large is a factor in bail, and it is possible to deny uh, someone charged with a crime bail based upon their uh, threat uh, to the safety of an individual, a group of individuals, or the public at large. And that's why, you know, terrorists and, and, and folks like that, mass murderers who charge in federal court, don't get bond. Um, as I understand it, no state has such a, such a statute. And it certainly Wisconsin does not. Um, and Wisconsin, um, every individual is entitled to a number. Uh, for a bond. And um, so, you know, uh, yesterday uh, when uh, uh, Mr. Brooks had his uh, first, what, what I would call first appearance, I don't know what they call it in, in, in Wisconsin, but uh, in a courtroom and the judge set the bond, he set it at $5 million, thinking that this number will keep this man uh, incarcerated so that he doesn't hurt anybody else pending trial. The problem with that is you know, what if some group or groups decide to do a GoFundMe thing and, I mean, they can raise $5 million. Uh, you know, LeBron James uh, could could write, he could make that happen immediately uh, and yeah. without thinking twice about it, just as an example. Um, and, and so he could get out. And these statutes that don't allow folks uh, to be kept in and, and force a judge to set a number uh, as bail – force judges to set high bonds, ridiculously high bonds, in hopes of keeping someone in jail. And then the AOCs and, and folks like that can say, well, you're, you're punishing poverty and they're being incarcerated pending trial because they're poor and they can't make their bond. When in reality, it, it, it's not that at all. It's the, that's the only way under these state statutes to keep someone in, incarcerated pending trial. So it, it's, it's going to be, uh, uh, a topic that we're going to probably return to many times over the next little while. Yeah, and I want to come back to bail in just a minute as a general concept, but first, just just one other factor on this case. And the uh, the district attorney John Chisholm actually put out a statement a couple of days ago on the twenty second, and he talked about kind of chronologically how these charges had come down, and he talked about on November fifth. They had issued charges of a bunch of things, but one of those being felony bail jumping. And he said that was appropriately charged, and they made a cash bail request in the amount of $1,000, which was set by the court. I, I think my question is, and I don't know if it's really a question or just, you know, a bit of outrage, but the guy's charged with felony bail jumping yeah. for for previous felonies, and then you make the decision, well— a thousand dollars, and that's appropriate. That's and the the Ed Yeager hello argument. That, that makes no sense in the beginning. No, it uh, really doesn't. And that's a great and point. The, the guy has a, a significant criminal history, but just back to the idea of bail, um, because you know bail is often looked at by people who watch the system as, well, why is that not higher given these charges, et cetera? But the purpose of bail is to ensure someone's appearance in court, um, or that's the original thought of bail. Now, you're right that that in the federal government, and I think everywhere, community safety has to be a factor. But I think that generally there is an association between the amount of bail 
and the likelihood that someone's going to come back to court in the context of what the charges are. That's right. So that if you're charged with something for which you've got criminal exposure of 10 to 15 years in prison and a very low bail, people are more likely to walk away from a $100 bail than they are $10,000. Right. At least that's some of the theory behind it. But as to the idea that community safety should be an element, I totally agree. Now, the other part of this, and it was a part in Wisconsin also, is how backed up the courts are everywhere because of COVID and the fact that people can spend a long time waiting to get to trial on particular charges. And so it's very difficult to say, well, everybody just needs to be locked up that entire time because that does hit some people in a very difficult position. But the guy in Wisconsin, I'm not even going to name him, but, you know, with all of his charges and with his history, the idea that you put him back on the street because you've set bail so low that, frankly, he probably doesn't care if he comes to court. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's the that's the thing is, you know, um, someone with long ties to the community, a family, a job, and they're charged with, you know, whatever run of the mill crime, they're likely to come to court. But this guy has a history of not coming to court. He's violent. He has just, uh, you know, run over his girlfriend um, with his vehicle intentionally. Um, That's also an interesting factor, the similarity of that crime, but also he'd run over a policeman in the past. Yeah. Or made an effort to run over a policeman in the past. It's, um, it really is, it, it, it boggles the mind how that could happen. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, Mr. Chisholm said they were going to have an internal investigation within the DA's office to figure out why the recommendation was made as a thousand dollars. And of course, you know, that's, that's too little too late. But the, the whole point is, Mr. Chisholm, bail reform is your thing. That's exactly why it was done. Um, and you're using 2020 hindsight to second guess one of your acolytes that you sent down to the courtroom in your name and told, uh, that person to, uh, you know, we're not trying to keep folks locked up pending trial. That's a very good point about the investigation they're going to conduct because you know that the office culture for people who were working their way up through the office was to set low bonds because that's what their boss wanted. Right. And and they're going to let some poor young assistant DA, you know, take the take the fall for, for, for this decision. And, I, you know, I don't like that either. I mean, you're the boss. Buck stops with you. Stand up and own it. No, you made the statement someone was going to get hurt, someone's going to get killed. It's happened now. That's right. You know, the other case that's um, just broke today is that the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case out of North Carolina. And the underlying case involves whether or not the General Assembly can be heard in an effort to defend the state's voter ID law. And voter ID has been on the ballot. The the voters have approved requiring voter ID. So now it's being challenged in court. The attorney general, who's a Democrat, the legislature's uh, controlled by Republicans in both houses. The attorney general is the one who is defending it. The leaders of the, the House and Senate in North Carolina, they went to the U.S. Supreme Court, asked for permission to be involved because the Fourth Circuit in Richmond had rejected their argument. So I find this case interesting because we also talked about the Cameron versus uh, uh, Kentucky case, or Cameron's the AG in the state of Kentucky who wanted to defend the 
uh, anti-abortion law there. And that one was heard in oral arguments by the Supreme Court a few weeks ago. So now they've agreed to hear this North Carolina case. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. You know, it's become a hot button issue with all these. um, And and I'm going to paint with a broad brush here, but I'm not aware of any Republican uh, state attorneys general refusing to uh, defend uh, a, a state legislative action or executive action for that matter in court. It's only been uh, liberal Democrat attorneys general. Um, and, uh, you know, that it, it, it seems to become a trend. I think until, you know, the last few years, you never, you never heard of such a thing. I mean, a, a state attorney general swore an oath to uh, uphold the law and to his job was to uh, represent the state in court, uh, among other things. And it just, you did it, you know, um, but but lately it's it's become I guess uh, the woke thing to do to to refuse to defend uh, laws in, uh, or actions in the courtroom if they, if you don't agree with the politics behind it. And I was about to ask you that if you think this really comes down to the fact that um, let's just say more seasoned lawyers kind of have have the viewpoint that you don't have to agree with your clients. You often don't. Uh, defend what they're doing on a individual basis, but you represent them in court. These attorneys general who refuse to do that is because they personally disagree with something the legislature has done, even though they took an oath to uphold and defend the law. Yeah, I, I, you know, if 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 that's the approach these attorneys general want to take with it, with their law practice, that's fine. You know, but but go to private practice, and and let that be uh, one of the bases upon which you decide to take or. or a particular case or not, uh, but but once you seek public office, the office of attorney general of the state, and and win and take the oath, you know you don't get to pick and choose your clients, and uh, you know it seems obvious to me, almost so obvious that I can't believe it has gotten this far, um, and I'm I'm hopeful that uh, the uh, Supreme Court of the United States, I don't think they can stop this. But they can certainly allow another uh, governmental official uh, to step in and represent the the interests of the state. Now, I will say that, you know, the other side of this coin somewhat is that the Fourth Circuit or whatever circuit might be involved in this case is the fourth. You know, their view is we've already got one lawyer in the case from the attorney general's office. Why do we need more? You know, I kind of see where they're coming from. But in reality, the politics that get involved make members of the General Assembly, the state legislature, feel like they're not being served by the attorney general of the state. That's right. And in fact, if you if you go back to the Kentucky case and I don't know if the Supreme Court's going to rule on that before it hears this case, I haven't seen anything setting oral argument for it. But if you go back to that, the the uh, the other side was saying he doesn't even get to come in and argue. That's right. And, and you know, you, you don't want judges to go too far down the road to, um, I, I guess, uh, offering opinions in, a, in, a, in an ongoing litigation as to the quality of uh, legal representation that one side or the other gets. However, in a case where the, uh, you know, the person charged with representing the state is clearly not doing it in the Kentucky case. It seems to me that, that the court has to allow um, there to be true representation 
particularly if representatives of the state are saying we're not satisfied with what's going on here. Um, so, but it is fascinating from a from an intellectual standpoint. Um, sort of uh, not only the facts, but the uh, the possibilities for the court. Um, and of course, the court doesn't is not going to want to get. I hate to say hands dirty. That 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 sounds bad. But I mean, court doesn't want to micromanage lawyers appearing before uh, before a particular tribunal. You know, it, it that's not the role of the court, or it shouldn't be. But I do think that there is some effort, or there should be some effort to make sure that a represented a, a party before the court that wants to be represented is actually represented. Well, let me let me just take one little tangent on this, and you may know some of this. Um better than I do, but I recall hearing of, of cases, and I believe Gideon was one such case, in which a uh, Gideon was a prisoner. He uh, appealed to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, basically handwritten petition for certiorari. The court accepted it. Well, they couldn't have a, a you know, a, a pro se person, or in this case, a prisoner come and argue the case, so they appointed a lawyer. And uh, I, I've heard they've done that in several cases. Gideon's the one I recall. And I don't know, maybe you know, that's so why I'm throwing it out there, whether there were discussions with this lawyer ahead of time or if they just plucked somebody out who was a Supreme Court litigator that they knew and he just had to go in and make the best case he could. I, I don't know the answer to that. And that's that's a that's a good question. I, my 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 knee jerk. And again, kind of like you, some vague memory going back is that the court sort of inquires through administrative lower level personnel, not the judges particularly, as to whether Edward Yeager, renowned Supreme Court litigator, would be willing to take on an appointment in a case that the court feels merits uh, a lawyer involved. Uh, but I don't know that to be the case, but that's my that's my belief. Um, and you're right, they did do that in Gideon, and they've done it in other cases where they feel like at least – on a prima facie basis, this person has a has has a, a, a claim uh, with merit, and and they they don't have a lawyer in the court for whatever reasons decides that this claim is is ripe for hearing at that level, uh, whatever that level is, and they want to make sure that it's properly briefed and argued, so they don't have to do it again, um, and so they appoint a lawyer to do that, and I think that's proper. Yeah, you know, they're not putting their finger on the scale of justice. What they're doing is is actually making sure that the scales are properly balanced. They want to hear it argued out so that they can make a decision. Right. And then and then not deal with it anymore. You know, here's our decision. Now that's that's off the table. We'll move on to something else. Well, so those are some of the big cases from around the country that uh, we've been covering this week. Uh, what's on your radar for the next week? I, I think this uh, well, obviously, this Waukesha case is going to be. Uh, in the news, in the front pages, uh, for a long time. So, so of course that, um, I think that, uh, as the weather turns colder, I think we're going to hear more about inflation as the cost of, 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 um, heating our homes in particular, it goes up. I heard today that it's expected before the winter ends and spring comes, it's expected to rise by at least 50%. And uh, I think we're going to hear a whole lot about, about inflation um, in the coming days, uh, particularly with uh, the president's uh, reappointment of the current 
uh, Federal Reserve chairman to serve a second term. Um, and uh, he made some what I will characterize as um, inane comments when announcing that import, uh, appointment that the Federal Reserve was to, my words, not his, give attention to fighting climate change, whatever the hell that means. And uh, I think as we go down this road of rising gasoline and home heating costs, um, the climate change issue is going to get some more attention in, in a way that has not gotten it before. So I, I think that's that's kind of what I'm looking at. What about you? Well, along the lines of your last point, there is a case out of Missouri or a situation, it's not a, a legal case quite at this point, uh, involving a pipeline. It's referred to as the Spire Pipeline. It was, run, it was going to run from a hub in Illinois to the St. Louis area. It was approved by the feds in 2018, but then there was all this environmental litigation that took place afterwards. They got a temporary permit to continue operating through December, and they were told they wouldn't get another permit. So this company, this company Spire, they've been making a lot of noise that that's going to shut off a significant amount of petroleum that's coming into the St. Louis area. Well, this week they put out a video that essentially showed the city without any gas. Oh, wow. And now the, the state regulators for Missouri have told them, you've got to retract this video that you put out. Uh, so I, I think the story is fascinating for a couple of reasons. First, what does it do to energy costs? How does it play out in terms of the Biden administration now? Are they going to let these folks continue operating? Or are they going to shut down another pipeline? And then lastly, how this is going to play out with the state telling them you can't say that. Yeah. How do you, how do you, how do you get away with telling uh, somebody they can't say something? Well, of course, they are regulated uh, monopoly. Uh, the, the state regulators said it was misleading. So uh, I'm not sure how this plays out. Wow. Keep an eye on that. Yeah. The other thing fun. is, yeah, that's, that's going to be interesting. The other thing is that Monday starts the uh, trial in federal court of Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, Epstein's associate. So I'm sure we'll hear more about what Epstein was doing because, of course, he uh, didn't kill himself, but he did die in prison and didn't get a trial. Well, yeah, and and I guess you saw that um, no allegations with regard to Prince Andrew are going to be allowed in this trial. And the young lady, Virginia, and I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name, uh, who has made uh, a number of accusations and has done so publicly against Prince Andrew, among others, is not going to be testifying. I did not know she wanted to be testifying. And so a lot of people are thinking that the fix is in. They're thinking that the... House of Windsor has um, has, has uh, finagled in some way uh, to to sort of uh, take the you know pull the rug out from under this trial before it started. I, I don't think I'm uh, I, I wouldn't say that. I don't think that's the case. But it'll be interesting to watch and see what happens. Well, and of course, there are multiple other alleged victims who are testifying. That's right, and and some of whom you know um, make allegations against a number of public figures, although uh, Prince Andrew will not be one of those. But ultimately, the the only one on trial is Maxwell. That's right. That's right. And so it's, it's possible the judge says, well, that's not relevant, you know, other than contextualizing what happened, unless you can point some evidence toward Maxwell. 
Right. Like the picture with her in it and this Virginia lady and Prince Andrew. And Prince Andrew. Yeah. So that starts this week. Well, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. Um, That'll be one fun, la- too. Yeah, one last thing is that I saw a press release from the Pentagon today that they have now created a new office uh, called the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group. Is this UFO? Which is... A, Yes, it's a successor to the U.S. Navy's Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force. So this is going to be a more permanent group in the Undersecretary of Defense's office. Wow. I like the the former title better than I like the new one, but whatever. Yeah, it flowed a little easier. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, the last thing is we want to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. We sure do, and we appreciate your listening. So thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Let's Think About That podcast. You can contact us at comments at letsthinkpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this, please click subscribe on your podcast provider and leave us a review.